Oh God, by your spirit, help us. Help us to open your word and to read it properly, God. Without you, we can't even read these words and understand what they mean. Without you, we can't even hear the words of the sermon and apply them to our heart. And without you, O oh God, we cannot even take the application and live it out in our lives. So God, by your spirit, be in this service. Be in this preaching of the word so that your people can be challenged, so that your people can be encouraged, and so that your people can share Jesus Christ with their families, with, with their neighbors, with their co-workers, with the world around them, Lord, that Jesus Christ may be praised in all the world. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. Yeah, it is great to be here with you. I've met some of you already, uh, and it is, again, a privilege and a joy to worship God with you and to now open God's Word with you. Would you please open the Word to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. And as you're opening it up, I'm going to give a little context for us so we, knew, so we know where Paul's at right now. In verse 8, chapter 8, I mean, Paul is beginning an argument um, because the Corinthians have a sin issue that he needs to deal with. The Corinthians, you see, are going to the temple and they are partaking in feasts that are meant for idol worship. Um, and they don't believe in idols, of course. They're Christians. They don't think that there are any other gods besides God. And so to them, it's, it's just food. It's just food. It's just free, good food. What's the big deal? Uh, but it is a big deal. And so Paul is very strong in his language to say, you cannot do this. You cannot partake in idolatrous feasts. You can't partake of the food. And then chapter 9, he kind of, in connection with that, he kind of goes off on his right, his duty, and his freedom as an apostle, uh, defending himself and the work that he's done. Uh, and then in our chapter, he's coming back to this argument. He's coming back to the problem of eating idolatrous food in an idolatrous feast and why it's such a big deal. Um, and so that's where we find ourselves, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Let's read that together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the same cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased." For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. May he add a rich measure of blessing to it. Can you think of any good example in your life? Someone who's a good example in your life. Think about it. You got somebody? Somebody who lives a good Christian life. And you say, I can look at this person and I can live in likeness of them in order to learn and grow in my sanctification. The Bible gives us examples. Paul, later in this, this very letter, says, be imitators of me. Not Eric, Paul. Be imitators of Paul because he is an imitator of Christ. And of course, our greatest and highest example is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our perfect example. Someone for us to emulate, to strive to be like. But the Bible doesn't just give positive examples, good examples. It gives also very, very bad examples. To instruct us, to warn us, to challenge us. Don't be like this person. Don't be like this group of people. They are a bad example. Learn from them and do something different. And so now in our passage, we have an example. Actually, we have multiple examples of what not to do. And God is saying to these Corinthians, you got to learn from these Israelites. you got to learn from this nation that time, time, and again, fell. Fell into sin, did not obey me, but did the opposite of what I told them to do. Learn from them and don't be like them. And so for us, we too are being warned. We are being challenged to not be like the Israelites. Now, two things before we begin. Two things we need to know. One, there is a lot in this passage. There is a lot. And so I encourage you to put your thinking caps on. Please follow along as best as you can. Um, We're not going to be going back to the Old Testament a lot, but I'm going to be referring to the Old Testament a lot. So there's just going to be a lot to go through. Number two, This passage is going to offer us a hard word. It's going to prod into your life. It's going to meddle in your life. Let it. Don't have a hard heart. Let the Spirit soften you up and hear and be challenged by the words of this text. Most of this is going to be hard. The first 12 verses are challenges, are warnings. But then we're going to finish with verse 13, which is one of the most encouraging verses in all scripture. All right, so it's going to be hard for the most part. And then we're going to end with a great encouragement. All right, so hold off until the end, be encouraged, but also be challenged. So let's dive in. The theme, these things took place as examples for you. These things took place as examples for you. And we're going to look at three things. One, Paul levels the playing field between Corinth and Israel. So Paul levels the playing field between these two groups. They're on the same page. Number two, Paul offers four examples. So there's going to be four subpoints under the second point. Four examples. And then thirdly, Paul offers an amazing encouragement as we heed these warnings. Paul levels the playing field. Paul offers examples. Paul offers encouragement. Let's dive in. 
verses 1 through 5. Paul levels the playing fields. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What's going on here is this. The Corinthian church presumed and had their confidence placed in the sacraments. Right? This was their logic. I've been baptized. I partake in the Lord's Supper. I'm good to go. I can now do whatever I want because I am a covenant member and there's nothing that can happen to me that will take me out of that covenant membership. And so what Paul is first doing here is says, okay, if you want to play that game, let's look at Israel. They, in a spiritual sense, had the same sacraments as you. When they passed through the Red Sea, they were baptized. When they ate of the manna that rained down from heaven, when they drank from the rock, which our text says was Christ, they partook in the Lord's Supper. They had the same covenant membership as you. And let's see how that plays out for them. Now, just a note, verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, as a bit of a tangential note, in Exodus, as they're traveling through, and in Numbers, as they're traveling through, wandering through the desert, there's two instances where the people drink from a rock, at the beginning and at the end. The one, Moses strikes, and the other one, Moses is supposed to speak to, but he strikes. But this says that the rock followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, I don't want us to envision a boulder rolling around with them like some sort of pet. Right? What this is saying is that Christ was their nourishment the entire time. He did it miraculously at the beginning and the end, but th- their whole nourishment, all the water that they drank, all the food that they were given, is from the nourishment of Christ. So now back, now back. They're on the same playing field. All right, Corinthians, so you've been baptized, you've been partaking the Lord's Supper. Are you sure that's where you want to put your confidence? It's not a good place. That is sinking sand. We're going to talk about that more later. But that is a sinking sand in order to build your house. Now, I do need to say, because we're celebrating Lord's Supper here, that the Lord's Supper and baptism, the sacraments, are good. They are gifts of God, and we cannot forget that. But what is the purpose of the sacraments? Let me be more crass for a moment. Do we say, baptism is our refuge and strength a very ever-present help in danger. No, we say the Lord is our refuge and our strength, our present help in danger. Do we say that our only comfort in life and in death is that I partake in the Lord's Supper? No, we say our only comfort in life and in death is that I do not belong to myself, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The sacraments are good. Let us never think that they're not. But the sacraments When we take this Lord's Supper, we do it in what way? In remembrance of him, in remembrance of Jesus. The blood as a full remission of all of our sins. The sacraments point us to Christ. We don't look to the sacraments. We look through the sacraments in faith to Jesus. But the Corinthians stopped at the sacraments. They were presuming on the sacraments. And so Paul Paul, as a summation in verse 5, says this, Nevertheless, they were in covenant membership. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. How many adults who came out of Egypt came into the promised land? You don't have to tell me. Just think about it. How many adults came out of Egypt and came into the promised land? Let's do some math for a second first. Exodus 12, I think, tells us that 600,000 men came out of Egypt. And so we can presume, maybe we shouldn't, but I'm going to, we can presume that each and every one of those men were married. And not only did 600,000 men come out and were married, a whole multitude, a mixed multitude came with them. And so let's say on the low estimate, we had 1.2 million adults. 1.3 million adults come out of Egypt. Only two and their families entered into the promised land. Chew on that. Out of 1.3 million Two. These were all covenant members. And all but two didn't make it. Don't presume on the sacraments that you take. Don't presume on that your covenant members alone. Hope is only found in Jesus. With most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so now that we have leveled the playing grounds between Corinth and Israel and us, let's move to the second point. Paul offers four examples. This is what he says, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, as we go through these, I want to think, we need to think of a couple of things as we go through these examples. One, if the Old Testament, as Paul says, was written as an example for the New Testament, then who was the New Testament written for? Us. It was written for us. It was written for the church. And so as we're going through, going through these, don't point the finger at Corinth. See how this word is being written as an example to you as instruction, as in warning for you. And two, notice, and we need to notice, that Paul is a pastor. That Paul knows his congregation so well that all of these examples have a very specific aim, a very specific purpose. And we're going to explore that in each one. But we'll also see his pastoral heart at the end with the encouragement that Paul is a pastor. He loves his church. He loves this church. He loves this church. He wants to warn us before we fall into the same pit that Israel did. So let's dive in. First example. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul is referring to Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. If you remember that, Moses was up on the mountain, and within a month and a half, the people were so discontent 
and so forgetful of the law of God that was given to them, they said to Aaron, Aaron, you make us a golden calf, an image, so that we may worship God through that image. A month later, and they're already disobeying the law from God. So don't be idolaters. Now, why does Paul specifically quote this? Reading this for the first time, in my notes here, I have like four question marks. Why would he use this verse? Well, the people ate and drank and they rose up to play. What does that mean? What is Paul referring to? Why doesn't he mention the golden calf? Why doesn't he mention the idolatry? Because in context, the Corinthians are feasting in idolatrous feasts. They are sitting down. They are eating. They are drinking with pagans. And they are rising up to play. There's festivities, there's parties that happen after these meals. Pagan festivities. And these Corinthians are joining in. I don't believe in idols, but this is fun. What's the big deal? It is a big deal. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Number two, verse eight. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul is referring to Numbers 25, in which the people of Israel have whored themselves with the people of Moab. God commanded them, don't do that. Don't wed yourselves or have sexual relations with anybody else except for Israel. And they whored themselves to the people of Moab. And it says in that, those, those nine verses too, that Not only did they sleep with the Moabites, they also went after their gods. And so that scripture tying this together, the the connection between idolatry and the connection between sexual immorality. Now, do you think that's Paul's purpose? That he just wants to bring these two together? Perhaps, that's probably part of it. Does Paul use this example because 23,000 fell in a single day? That's probably part of it as a warning. But why does he pick this specific Sexual sin. Does anybody remember who the people of Moab were? How they came to be, how they came into existence? Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was made drunk by his daughters. And his daughters slept with him. Incest. And from there, one of the sons was named Moab. And so the Moabites were a people born out of incest. It's disgusting. Sinful. Sinful against God. So why does Paul pick this example? What is the specific sexual sin that the Corinthians are dealing with? Chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, I'll tell you. A man has taken his father's wife. And that man has been allowed to stay in communion. He's a covenant member. Sure, he can sleep with his father's wife. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal, Corinthians. 23,000 died in a single day, were smitten by God in a single day for sleeping with a people born out of incest, and you are allowing this in the church of God. You are allowing idolatry, and you are allowing sexual immorality in the church of God. How dare you? People of God, we see this in our culture. It's so easy to see. This morning we talked about individualism 
an idolatry of the self, a worship of the same, a worship of the self, is it no wonder then that homosexuality is rampant? It's an attraction to the self, homo, same, sexuality. Pornography runs rampant in the streets, on the billboards even. The idolatry of self-fulfillment, the idolatry of I need pleasure within myself, and it results in sexual immorality. And what we also talked about this morning is that people of God, we cannot be blind Ignorant of how this is in our church. Let us never be presumptuous that there are no people in this church that struggle with homosexuality. Same-sex attraction. Let us never think that nobody in this church struggles with pornography. It's just not helpful to think that. We need to be aware. We need to see it if we're going to fight it. Now, I said that we're not, I'm not going to give any encouragement until the end, but let me give you just a sneak peek. I know what it's like to be bound by sin. But Christian, there is freedom in Christ. Christian, your sexuality can be cured. It can be. Holy Spirit helps you in that. And you do not need to be bound by your sin. You don't need to fall for that temptation. The Spirit gives strength to free us and to wash us clean. Just a sneak peek. Let's move on to the third example. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This, of course, is Numbers 21, the account of the bronze serpent. Now, in this account, the people are grumbling. The people are discontent with the way that their life is right now. They think and they say that their pre-Exodus life, that their enslavement is better than the freedom that God has won for them. We had more food. We had more water in Egypt. And the food that you've given us, God, we don't even like it. It's not even good enough for us. What are you going to do, God? We're discontent. How are you going to satisfy us? We're going to push the boundaries a bit and see what you're going to do if we, if we ask for more. God sends serpents. Serpents. And Paul doesn't give us the number here. But thousands of people died. Many, many people died. They're destroyed by serpents because they were discontent. Now, this strikes Corinth. This strikes this Corinthian church. Why? Well, maybe if we, if we think about it for a moment, the Corinthians' thought process here, that when they became Christians, well, let's back up a little bit. Before they were Christians, they partook in these feasts. They went to the temple, and they partook. And when they became Christians, maybe they stopped for a bit. Maybe they said, oh, we shouldn't do this anymore. We shouldn't partake in, in pagan feasts. But then eventually they start thinking, Oh, but those feasts were fun. We had really good times at those feasts. That food was really good. Why not go back in? Why not join them again? And so Paul is very strong with them. 
don't do it. Don't be discontent with the life that God has given you. Don't think that your pre-Christian life is in some way better than your now Christian life. That's a lie of the world. That was a lie of your own sinful flesh. Do not believe it. Your Christian life is better in so many ways than your non-Christian life. And then, Paul moves to the fourth example, a very connected example to the previous one. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, Paul is probably talking about number 16. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Maybe those names are familiar to you, maybe they're not. Essentially, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were discontent with their position. Why are Moses and Aaron the top of us? Why are they in leadership over us? Why has God put them in leadership over us? We want to be in power. And so they complain against Moses. They complain against Aaron. And they test God. They literally test God. And they say, let God choose between you, Moses, and us. Well, God chooses. And what happens is literally ground-shattering. And I say this because that's what God did. God answered. And he said this to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. He said this to the people, I should say. If you want to be with them, stay around them. But I warn you, don't be anywhere near Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Why? Because God literally opened the earth, and they and their families and all their possessions fell, and it sealed up. Do not grumble. But interestingly enough, this is not what exactly Paul is referring to. He's referring to the very next day when all the people who were just spared by the grace of God and saw God punish these three discontent, complaining people, and they come to Moses and Aaron and say, you killed these people. It's your fault, Moses and Aaron, that they're dead. It's your fault, God, that they're dead. We are grumbling against you. The very next day, the people did this. So God sends a plague. And again, Paul doesn't give us a number, but 14,700 people died from the grumbling that they did. Now again, what does this mean for Corinth? Eating at the feast is not a big deal. Paul tells them it is a big deal. Don't do it. And so then they grumble. Paul, why are you such a buzzkill? Paul, this isn't a big deal. Just let us have some fun. We're not doing anything wrong. We don't believe in these idols. Well, if you want to grumble against Paul, you're going to be grumbling against the Lord. Israel is an example to you. Don't do what they did. And again, it's the same for us. You and me, it's the same in our lives. This passage is not only meddling in the lives of the Corinthians, it's meddling in your life. Do you ever think that your pre-Christian life has nuggets of joy and nuggets of goodness that you want to bring into your Christian life now? Do you ever feel that way? That movie was really good. I should watch it again. No, you shouldn't. 
There are some movies you should just not watch as a Christian. It's unbecoming of a Christian. Eric, are you, what are you saying to me? You're saying that there's some movies that I can't watch as a Christian that I could watch as not a Christian? Yes, that's what I'm saying to you. Don't partake in the idolatry. Don't partake in the sin that is influencing you. Eric, are you saying that there's some music that I shouldn't listen to now that I'm a Christian? Yes. Of course there is. There's some friends that I shouldn't spend all my time with? Well, are they bringing you away from Christ? Are they peer pressuring you to drink? Are they peer pressuring you to do all sorts of things? Then yes. Christian life is different than non-Christian life. Christian life is better than non-Christian life. The only thing that tells you that the opposite is true is the devil and our own sin within us. And God is not a buzzkill for doing this. Don't shake your fist at God and say, God, I had so much fun before. Now all I do is sit, read my Bible, go to church. That's all I do. God promises you joy. But real joy. Joy in Christ. Joy in obedience. I was just talking with a brother before this, that God, the way that God has made us is infinitely better than the twisting that we want to do in our own lives. We want to do all sorts of things that we think would be good for us because we think that somehow we know better than God. God made you. God saved you. God knows you better than you know yourself. And he has commanded you, he has commanded me to live in a certain way and to not live in a certain way so that you may flourish, that you may thrive, that you may have joy. I can't help but talk of the illustration. The fish that thought life would be better when he came out of the water. Life is not better for the fish who goes on his own way. No, God made him with certain boundaries to live in water. He will be happier if he stays in it. God has made us with boundaries, laws, to do's and to don'ts. Joy is when we follow that. Joy is when we live within those boundaries, within that fence that God has given us. Now these things, verse 11, happen to them as an example. Again, an example for the Corinthian church, an example for us. On whom the end of the ages has come, the telos, the Greek word for the goal of all of history, the goal of all redemption is so that we, the church, would be instructed, warned, encouraged by this word. The end of the ages has come upon you. Don't neglect this word. Don't shy away from it. Don't harden your hearts against it. Take it in. Let it hurt. Let it cut. Let it be painful and learn from it. Change by it. And then he says this, therefore, verse 12, a conclusion to all these examples, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed 
lest he fall. Do not presume on your mere covenant membership. Do not build your house upon that sinking sand. Because as soon as temptation comes, as soon as the wind of the world comes, you will be knocked over. You will sink and you will die. Listen to what Paul is saying. You can fall out of covenant membership. Plain and simple. Israel was destroyed time and time again. They fell out of covenant membership. If our confidence, if our assurance is in this, is in your baptism, then you are in danger of falling. Take heed, Corinthian church. Take heed, Messiah's Reformed Fellowship. Listen to Paul plead with you. Take heed. He doesn't want you to fall. He wants you to stand on Jesus. On the place where your encouragement and your assurance is only found, where these things are pointing you towards, on Jesus. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He wants you to live in God's light and in God's purposes. Take heed, Christian. Trust in Jesus. And then Paul gives us an encouragement. Fantastic, gospel-centered encouragement. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Or in the positive light, every temptation that you have faced is common to man. Have you ever felt that way? That the sin that you're dealing with, that you must be the only one. Have you ever felt alone in the temptation that you face? Have you ever felt like you could never talk to somebody about it because they wouldn't understand, because they would judge you, because you would be shamed by them? There's only one person who wants you to think that way. That's the devil. The devil wants you to think that you are alone in your sin because in the darkness, sin festers. In the darkness, in isolation, that's when sin grows. Think of the story of Frankenstein. In the dungeon, a monster is made. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Look at all these examples that we've been through. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, grumbling, discontentment, and a whole sort of others. No temptation that is overtaking you is common to man, is not common to man. God is faithful. This is the ground of our confidence, of our assurance, not in anything like the sacraments, not in anything like our covenant membership, God is faithful. That is where we hold, that is where we cling, that is where we tie ourselves to and beg God to never let us go. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's one thing that he does. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The temptation that you face, believe it or not, you have the ability to fight it, to overcome it. But the second way, he does this. God does this. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. There is an implicit command in this verse. And one that we need to say because of what I just said could be taken wrongly. I said that you have the ability to overcome it. The prerequisite to that is that you believe in Jesus. That you believe that God is faithful. That you depend wholly upon him. That you rely only upon him. And God is faithful to not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he offers the way of escape. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Now, two general comments as we close. One, does this promise of God Did the Israelites have this promise? Did they need to fall into sin? If they had trusted in God, if they had put their faith in God alone, would they have been able to overcome this temptation? Yes. Yes, they would have. But they didn't believe in God. They didn't put their faith only in their Savior and their Lord. And so when the temptation came, they were blown over. Take heed of this example. The Israelites failed. The Corinthians are in danger of failing, of falling of not heeding the words that Paul is giving to them. I'll give you a spoiler. They did heed. They did heed this call. In the next letter, Paul celebrates that they, though this is a hard word, they took it. Though it hurt them, they understood it. Though it prodded and meddled with their life, they believed it. Now, they still had issues. But they heeded this word, and they did not fall. Through the strength that God provided, they did not fall. So, Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, this promise is for you. Will you take heed of the examples given to you this day or not? You know what's going to happen if you don't. You will be destroyed. But if you do, then you will live and you will thrive, and you will have joy. Second general comment about this verse in particular, about this promise, is that I need to be honest. I understand the words of this verse. I do. Intellectually, I get it. And intellectually, I know that God is faithful, and I know that he is able to only give me temptation that I am able to overcome, and that he will provide the way of escape. I know that. But I have a hard time believing it. You know what I mean? 
That when temptation comes, even though I know this verse, I think, oh no, this is too much for me. And then I fall into sin. That is not that God isn't faithful. That is that me, I'm not putting faith in the Lord. I'm trusting in my own strength. I'm saying, I can't overcome this temptation. But God can. In you, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. No temptation is too much for God. Believe in Jesus. Put your confidence, put your hope, build your house upon the rock that is Christ, who died for you, who gave himself for you, who loved you, and who is able to sympathize with you. He knows every temptation that you have gone through, and he knows every temptation that you have not gone through. And he overcame them all. This is the same Christ who is in you. To overcome temptation, to say no to sin. It is possible, not in your strength, but in God's. Now, if you want something practical to do as we close, memorize this verse. It's one verse. It's not that hard. Go home, spend a day or two on it, Memorize this verse. And when you face temptation in your day, pray this verse to God. Tell God what he has promised you. And say, God, I know because you told me that this temptation that I'm facing is common to all men. I know that I'm not alone in this, Lord. Give me strength to confess it to my brothers, to my sisters, Lord, to get help from my pastor and my elders, Lord. But God, in this moment, you have promised me that this sin, this temptation, I can overcome it. That you will not give a temptation that I cannot overcome. God, you have promised me that you will provide the way of escape that I will be able to endure it. God, answer that promise. Fulfill that promise in my life at this moment, at this time, right now. God's word cuts deep, but it heals with the gospel. It heals you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cling to God. He is faithful. Cling to Jesus. And there will be no temptation that is not common to man that God, with the temptation, will provide you with the way of escape and you can live in joy and obedience. Take heed. Take heed. Let's pray. Our God, you are a promise-making God. And you are a promise-keeping God. You are faithful. You are true. And we can put our trust in you. God, in all the ways that we fail at this, in all the ways that we trust ourselves more than trusting you, Lord, forgive us for that. And by the strength of your spirit, work in us an assurance of the truth of this verse. 
Work in us a belief in Jesus that we trust in nothing else, that we put our faith in nothing else, but only in Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, may this chapter be a warning to us. But let it not stay there. Let it be also an encouragement to us that you, by the very fact of writing these words in this letter, want us to obey you. And you have given us your spirit in order to obey you. God, be with us in this day, Lord, as we face temptation. Be with us in this week as we face temptation, God, and give us the strength of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that has put in us new life. Lord, so that we may pray your promises back to you, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.